Good morning, church. You know, if we were at one of them uh, big old fancy pants mega churches, I'd have some, some kid in black just come grab that stand and haul it over here while I walk nonchalantly. <laughs> but no, 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 not, not here. Y'all get, it. Y'all get the real deal. Um, so we're in a series uh, that I sketched out for this season of Advent called The Promised One. And each Sunday until we get to Christmas, we're going to be looking at the promises of God, the promises that he gave about the Savior, and and with each of those promises, a little bit more about who this Savior is and what he's come to do gets revealed. So this morning, we've jumped forward in time. Last week, y'all remember where the promise came last week? I know you remember. Oh, buddy. Hey, all of our, all of our videos are available on demand on YouTube. You can watch them. Sorry, I'm getting scolded by my wife. That's fine. That's what she's supposed to do. Now, um, last week we had the very first promise of the Messiah, and that came to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden on the very day they fell into sin. We are going to take a, a, a leap forward in time. We're not leaving the book of Genesis, um, but we're moving up to Abraham. And, you know, I know some of y'all have, have been in Bible studies and you know your Bible well, but there's also a lot of people who don't necessarily know the order of things in the Bible. So I'm going to give you a little orientation. Abraham is the grandfather of Jacob. And Jacob gets his name changed to Israel. Jacob has a, like a baker's dozen of kids, right? And from them become the 12 tribes of Israel. At the end of the book of Genesis, though, it's not tribes. It's just this one family with the bunch of sons. And then over the course of 400 years in Egypt, the population grows, and that's where they become tribes. And that leads all the way up to the story of the Exodus that you guys are probably, hopefully, familiar with. So so when we read the story from today, it predates the nation of Israel. There's no nation here. Over the course of history, this, this family that grows into these tribes, that becomes this nation, over time, they begin to think of God as their God, which is true in one regard, right? Because it, he is the God that they worship, and they are a people that he chose. But you know, by the time you get to, by the time you get to like the, the New Testament, when Jesus is walking around. And it really goes earlier than that, but let's just use that as a marker. A lot, of, a lot of the Jewish people started to think of God as their God, as if he was their God and no one else's. Right? Like he was their private God. And that's not the way it was supposed to be. Um, but you can understand how they got to that point. This story predates all that. This story is about Abraham and his son Isaac. There are other people that worship God, but, but broadly speaking, the, the, the promised 
people of God right now? It's the two of them. That's the nation that will be Israel. These two people. The whole covenant. When you compare that with the time of the New Testament when, you know, you've got this nation and they're fighting for their freedom from Rome and whatever, you compare that against two guys on a mountaintop, this seems incredibly small. I didn't feel that smallness last week when we read the story. It was the same. Adam and Eve, it was just two people. But it didn't feel small, right? Because those two people represented 100% of the population. But the story of Abraham's different, right? He's, he's, this, he's this guy who, he, he comes from a pretty well-to-do family. He's, he's doing all right as a rancher, um, Ranching's not quite right. He's a, he's a, he's a herdsman, um, he be, but he becomes a nomad. Beginning of his story, basically, is God says, you've got to get up and leave where your family has been. Um, we don't think twice about this, I guess, in our own day. Some families do, some families don't. You know, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't nearly as big a deal for me when I left my family to go off to college, right, and then to go start a life. We just kind of think that way. But, but we certainly felt the, the isolation, I guess, of being apart from family. You know, we lived in Virginia. We lived even in St. Louis. And it was just Alicia and me, and we're just making it work, you know. Abraham's doing that with far less structure, and he's well advanced in age. And so he just ventures off into the unknown with his household. And God promised to Abraham as he embarked on this endeavor that he would be the father of nations and kings. And that sounds great, but Abraham's like 80. And Sarah probably his childhood sweetheart, because she's also in her 80s, right? Some of y'all who have crested the hill of maturity know that there are some things that are supposed to be impossible when you become a woman of a certain age, right? Nevertheless, they don't have a kid, but God promised that he would be the father of nations and kings. Finally, somewhere around 100, he has a son, Isaac. And God makes it clear. He says, it is through Isaac that your descendants will be reckoned. This is it. This is the boy you've been waiting on for 80-something years. So imagine you're 100 something years old. You've got the son you've been waiting for for 80 years. And, you know, from him is supposed to come nations and kings. From Isaac. That's a miracle. How strange and unlikely. And my gosh, I would not want to parent a teenager when I'm 113. But. <laughs> But that's the wonder of this story, right? I mean, it's a miracle this kid was even born. 
and the promise of God rides on him. And then one day, God shows up and says to you, okay, now I want you to take that boy that you waited 80 years for, and I want you to walk him up the mountain, and I want you to sacrifice him to me. I don't think I could do it. And whether you think you can or not, I, I'm not going to judge you. But what an incredibly hard thing. When you read that story, you think, how, how, how could Abraham possibly do it? And how do you make sense out of a God who asks you to do it? Hebrews chapter 11 is very helpful in this because there's an insight there that I don't have when I just read the story myself. Here's what Hebrews 11 says. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Listen to this. This is Hebrews 11. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so, in a manner of speaking, he did raise Isaac back from death. Wow. Abraham, if the writer of Hebrews is to be believed, and since it's in my Bible, I'm inclined to. Abraham so believed that God was good to his promises. He believed that if he obediently sacrificed his son, God would come behind him and raise his son from the dead. You know, maybe Abraham understood what we talked about last week, that when God speaks, the universe changes. And so when, when God makes a promise, there's nothing in the universe that can stop it. And, you know, he was proven right in a sense. And this, that's what the guy in Hebrews, the, guy, the writer of Hebrews says, is, you know, in, in a way, he was resurrected. In a way, he did get his life back. The story is really striking. Right? You, Abraham lays Isaac up on the wood, ready to sacrifice him. He has the knife in hand and everything. And God says, freeze. Don't touch your son. And he looks past Isaac, and what did he see? Anybody, what did he see? He saw a ram with his horns caught in a thicket. And the picture struck me this time, reading the story, that hadn't struck me before. It's almost as if the ram has his head encircled with thorns. And that ram was to take the place of his son. I think we'll come back to the significance of that in a minute, but I want to talk about the promise because that's what we're here to talk about, right? The promised one, so let's talk about the promise. God says to Abraham, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. I got to pause on that. I'm thankful that he did the seashore thing, right? Because I've lived in cities my whole life. And we were like, look up at the sky. Who can count the stars? Me. Seven. 
Out here in Liberty Hill, it's a little bit nicer. I can see a little bit more, right? Um, but I've camped out. I've been out in the country a couple times in my life. It's not something I've got to do a lot of, but it's nice. And when there's really no light pollution, you know, this, it is striking. It is breathtaking. Um, all right, he says, your, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Now, I suspect that the way that Abraham hears this promise, it's about his family being numerous and successful. And that's in there. And that is definitely part of the promise. Interestingly, I think for me, as a Gentile, reading this story down the road, I'm more interested in that other part. Not that your descendants will be as numerous as the stars, although maybe that has something to say to us too. But through you, all nations will be blessed. That last bit there, it means that the promise is bigger than his family. It's not just a promise for his family. It's a promise for the whole world. And you might think that what that promise means is that as, his, as the nation of Israel spreads around the world, then they'll interact with people and in so doing be a blessing to those people. Yeah, it is. But actually, I think the promise is more specific. It's about a more specific offspring. And it's about a blessing much bigger than that. God was pointing not to Abraham's offspring broadly, but to one specific offspring. He even says it in the singular. Who would come? The promised one, the one that he promised to Adam and Eve, was being promised once again on this mountain where a father had brought his only son to be an innocent sacrifice. When we talked about the the ram with his crown of thorns and a father sacrificing his only beloved son. Like, you and I, we can see something there that Abraham probably couldn't see. God was showing us a sliver of the pain and the seriousness and the love and the magnitude of the sacrifice that would be him offering up his only son as a sacrifice for us. But here's the thing. When he sends his only son up the hill, there is no ram to take his place. Because he is the ram in the thicket. Sacrificed to save the sons and daughters of Abraham. The children of Abraham, you should understand, is not a genetic thing. Those are people of every nation. They're not just heirs of his genes. They are people who are heirs of the faith of Abraham. The people who would put their faith in the promised one. This is what Romans 9 says about this. Okay? Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. 
It's pithy, but I want to say it again slowly so we get it. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. That's what Romans 9 says. When I was in Sunday school, we, uh, we sang a song, had a lot of silly actions. I'm not going to make you do it today. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. There's a, there's, a, there's a message embedded there that we shouldn't miss, right? Which is to be God's people is to be God's people by faith. How many of you were born Lutheran? No, put your hands down. It's not genetic. You are what you are in Christ because of faith. Faith that was passed down to you. Faith that you inherited. But also that could have been rejected. The people of God have always been and always will be the people of God by faith. And when God says that through Abraham and through Abraham's offspring, all nations will be blessed, he's saying nothing other than Salvation of God knows no borders. It knows no races. The salvation of God is for the world. The blessing of Jesus was never intended to be for a narrow group of people who all look the same or speak the same language or live in the same area. The blessing of God is as wide and as diverse as mankind. Because that promise, don't forget, first came to Adam and Eve. By God's grace, you've been made part of that too. And I hope as you make your way through, through the days, weeks, months ahead, as you look around, you'll make a conscious effort to recognize that everybody you lay eyes on could be a child of Abraham. And what they need is to receive the promise. You've been deputized. You can give it out freely. <laughs> Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you love us and the world and that, uh, and that your salvation is for all nations. It is, um, it is so liberating to know, Lord, that uh, our enemies aren't people. And that you don't show favoritism to this nation or that nation because there is one kingdom that you care about, and that is the kingdom in which you are king. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would live as citizens of your kingdom and that we would welcome more and more people into it. And that as we approach the celebration of Christmas, Lord, that that, that Christmas hope and joy and those promises in our hearts 
would also be on our lips, that we could share them with the people around us who so desperately need to hear it. We thank you for loving us and calling us your children by faith. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.